Just a quick heads up, these are adult conversations and there is the possibility of adult language. Enjoy. So in the midst of this visualization, you know, you know, as you read a book, you read a paragraph, you can form that visualization in your mind. You can almost, you know, you can kind of see it. Um, that's, you know, very similar to what it was. You're reading those words, you're putting thought to give life to the visualization. What happened next was so profound, it was unlike that. I put no thought to see what I saw. Welcome to the Saul Good Media Podcast, a podcast that explores what it is that drives each of us to do what we do. Today I'm joined with Jeremy Kramer, also known as Tarzan. I met Jeremy only about a month ago through mutual friends, and I was really interested in having Jeremy on the show today because he lives a pretty unique and alternative lifestyle. Other than his bike and backpack, Jeremy lives pretty minimally sleeping under the stars wherever he can find a place to hang his hammock. In this episode, we'll be diving into Jeremy's past and talk about some of the moments that have cultivated the way he lives his life today. We'll also explore some of the challenges that left Jeremy contemplating suicide and a spiritual awakening that ended up changing his mind the day before he planned to kill himself. Jeremy and I have become fast friends and I'm honored that he was open to sharing his story with us today. So Jeremy, to kick it off, how long have you been living off the grid? I'd say, I'd say four and a half years. Four and a half years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been on and off, um, but primarily the last four, four and a half, almost five years now has been in a tent or in a hammock or in a minivan on national, national forest or state land. Or just, you know, anywhere where I can get away with sleeping and not being bothered. <laughs> but it's almost always been uh, just raw wilderness, you know, waking up with the birds and just feeling that. And you're still, I mean, you're still connected. You were working um, just recently at a, you were holding down a job while living in the woods. And wh- so what does living off the grid mean to you? To me, I've actually never lived off the grid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's uh it's something I am relentlessly and endlessly pursuing and it is, you know, it's the dream, it's the goal. Um it's the end game. Um but you know, I I can't do it quite yet. You know, I still have to, you know, I'm still living here in America. I still have family here in America. I have to, you know, um kind of play play to those rules, you know, a lot of the resources that without our current structure would be readily available are, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of monopolized. And um, so I do have to, I find myself in need of money still. Um, The dream I I really, really have is to be, you know, a master forager, gardener, farmer, you know, and maybe even a, a dash of hunter, fisherman in there. Um, but primarily just a just a farming foraging, you know, fanatic. And you know, I feel if I if if we had mastery of those skills, then I could just you know have nothing on my back and just walk into the wilderness and be fine, have everything I need, know how to 
you know, where to look for what and, you know, be at an understanding of the climate I'm in and what I can expect to find. Um, but I'm nowhere, nowhere near there quite yet. So. Well, to, to go back in time, um, could you bring us up to date on how you've decided to live this type of lifestyle and some of the, the big points that sort of guided you in this direction in the first place? You know, it's funny when we, when we think about our past, our childhood and, you know, I, I just had my 26th birthday, let's see, four days ago now. Hey, happy belated. Hey, thank you, Solomon. And, um, you know, I, maybe you can relate to me, um, that when I, when I think of my childhood or my teenage life, it almost, it seems like I'm just like this third party person watching a movie, like, like almost like I didn't live that life. Like when I really think about it, so much has transpired and, you know, I've, I've changed and developed so much throughout those experiences, um, that it's just a very profound feeling when I dive back into that, you know, but it's, I think it's very important for all of us to do, you know, as much as I find value in just being in the present and being here and letting go of, you know, worry of the past or anxieties of the future and just being at peace in the moment. Um, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind the connections you've made, your past experiences, especially childhood. You know, we, we all have, you know, we've all had rough lives, everyone, in some way, shape, or form. We've got trials that have, you know, hurt us and helped us. But so for me, you know, I grew up um, in Livonia the first seven years of my life, a suburb of Detroit, about 20 miles west of Detroit. And um, for seven years there, I lived with my mother and my father and my sister, Danielle. She's four years older than me. And um, we were always very, very, very close. So at seven, we moved. We were actually in Westland, correction. And then we moved to Livonia at seven. And fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not quite sure, but at eight, my, my parents split up. They got divorced. And in that moment, at eight years old, I remember vividly walking into the house that day and feeling the energy that before I even entered the house, it was, it was foreign. The whole space was foreign to me. I could feel, you know, the, the feeling of family, of that grounding. It didn't even exist anymore before I was even told what happened. At eight years old, I remember feeling that. I walk in the door and there they are, you know, all in separate corners of the living room, which was very weird. All had tears in their eyes. And, you know, they told me, you know, Jeremy, come here. We need, we need to have a talk. I mean, you know, please come sit down with us. And, you know, they shared, you know, we're not going to be living together anymore. And it just, I had no concept of what that meant. You know, I was like, what do you, your mom and dad, like your, your mom and dad, where, what do you, no. And it was almost this state of denial that I think lasted probably more than I even realized many, many years. And I just kind of learned just in these last few years that I spent most of that time, you know, even in my adult life, wishing subconsciously that I could restore that connection of my family, that we could, you know, be a family unit again, you know, and I never, I didn't even realize that that was kind of lingering in the back of my mind, you know, and it kind of projected a lot into my relationships and into friendships yeah, so at eight years old, went through that, and my sister and I became absolute best friends. You know, we had a four-year split, you know, in our years, but, you know, we we became the only, you know, solid foundation of our home life was each other, you know, and we were always together, you know, we had split time between mom and dad, 
visiting. So she was like my rock, you know, she's my best friend and still is. I love her so much. She's, she's an incredible person. Shout out to Danielle. Yeah. Thank you, Danielle. (laughs) We love you. So to kind of give you a rough spectrum, my, you know, from eight to 13, I, you know, really struggled with, I think it, it took tie back into that way. I projected that wanting to restore the family unit. I desperately seeked you know, in-depth connection and friendship. And I never found it. I never had a very, very close friend who, you know, valued me as much as I valued them. And I had a lot of friendships that ended kind of on, for no good, no real logical or rational reason at all on bad terms. You know, this theme kind of, this pattern happened where I became an outcast for whatever reason. Um, So I never had a very, you know, solid social group, you know, throughout middle school and late elementary school. So when I was 12, though, I formed, you know, I think another aspect of that projection, I kind of, you know, I so desperately wanted that, that I, you know, I do almost anything to get the attention and the time with the friends that I, you know, I pursued and I valued. In Livonia, I grew up kind of being a daredevil, an adrenaline junkie, and I'd be the first guy to try a new trick or jump off the roof or fall into that bush or do something crazy and weird. I mean, you can find old videos of me, I'm sure, on YouTube doing all kinds of silly nonsense. <laughs> um, I'll see if I can link them in the description if I can find them. <laughs> oh, no. So when I was 12, that circle of friends that I we were filming these videos and just kind of doing random nonsense through town, I you know, fell into dabbling with marijuana and alcohol at 12. And um, that would that would have been seventh grade. So seventh and eighth grade, that was going on. And my mother, you know, of course, as all good mothers are, she she knew what was going on. You know, she could feel it. She could sense it. And then, you know, you know, found evidence and was very concerned for for my for my future, you know, because she she was very well aware of that same point I made about not having good, real, real connection, friends, friends that actually treated me like a friend. So at 14, just at the end of middle school, eighth grade, my f- sister's four years apart, so she just graduated high school. She was going away to college. She was going to Eastern. And my mom decided that that was an appropriate time to make a change for me because she was worried about my future in, in Livonia. So with no choice of my own, I was forced to move to Novi with her, and my stepfather, and they chose to enroll me into Franklin Road Christian School, a private Christian school. And uh, you know, I was I was the daredevil, I was the rebel, I was the loud, outspoken, goofy kid. And here I come into a a kindergarten through twelfth grade Christian school where the majority of the students there have been there since kindergarten. I walk in in ninth grade listening to Eminem and, you know, all these crazy stories of, you know, drug use and alcohol. And I was, you know, I dare say maybe the worst thing that that school had seen at that point. Um, so I, you know, I, I didn't fit in too well, to say mm-hmm. the least. So That's I had a pretty extreme transition. It, it really was. It was, uh, it was hurtful. You know, I felt like I was, you know, my choice and my feelings was neglected. I valued those friendships so much, even though I... I was kind of blind to what they actually were. Um, the ones in, from the previous school. Yes, in Livonia. I could kind of back up here. What I'm what I'm building towards to the, to the Novi experience, that Christian school. Um, I was raised Protestant in a Protestant church, Christian. Um, more so non-denominational than Protestant, but it was a 
Protestant church that my grandfather was a minister at, Eugene. God bless you. I love you. And um, I'm told that at just three years old, I professed my faith in Jesus and that I, you know, I asked to let him, you know, be my savior and I asked him to be in my heart. And then at seven, my grandfather baptized me. And I have a very, very vague memory of that. But I, I feel, you know, either I'm completely batshit crazy or the voice of God has kind of been with me my whole life. I've, I've felt a prompting of my heart, uh, an inner voice, if you will, that has in a vague and sometimes very, very clear way kind of shown me what's right and what isn't. I feel I've, I've had that connection as long as I can remember. You know, regardless of the times in my struggles, I, you know, strayed from that path and that voice. So yeah, the, the spiritual aspect of my life has, has really always been there for me. And even in, in my younger years in, in Livonia, in those struggles, it was very, very important to me. When I went to the Christian school in Novi, you know, it was part of the curriculum. You know, we'd have every Wednesday was, you know, we'd have worship at the end of school. And it was, you know, obviously instilled into our academics as well, which which I actually really liked. I really enjoyed that. It was very centering and grounding, you know, unifying just with my own peace of mind. And But I still, you know, my, my graduating class, my ninth, fellow ninth graders, there was only 16 of them. Oh, wow. So it was such a tight-knit small group that I just... I was, you know, that I was still kind of the outcast because I was the rebel, mm. you know, six months into school, I hadn't really had any in-depth connections. I hung out with people occasionally, um, but I didn't, I didn't have any, a new circle of friends and I was still kind of clinging to the hope of the old friends. And my best friend, my rock, my sister was away at college. So I didn't have really any of that. So six months in, at 14 years old to my freshman year in this private Christian school, I fell into a deep state of depression. Um, and, you know, for months I, I was caught in this, this false feeling of, of hopelessness, of being alone. You know, I just, I just didn't have the connection. So it was easy for me to believe that, that lie. So at 14, I had, you know, had, I was thinking about just wanting to not exist. Just I was in so much emotional and mental pain always, every day, because of my living situation. And so I had planned to kill myself. I just I just wanted to not feel that pain anymore. It was the way my logical brain worked at that point, I guess. Um, so I had been taking, you know, small doses of my mother's medications that I knew were powerful enough to perhaps do that slowly so she wouldn't notice. And I had the mundane idea in my silly little head that, well, if I do it on a weekend, they'll have time to deal with it and they can go back to work and continue their lives. And, wow. Yeah. And uh, kind of sad thinking back to, to who I was then and where I was. Um, I mean, you're not alone. I think a lot of people have their own things to to get through. And so to be able to hear this and to, you know, look at it with love and look at it and from an outside perspective, like you said, it's not... We're not the things we do. We're not those things that we feel. We are so much more than that. And to be able yeah. to step on out of that. Um, but please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that was that was great. Um, it was very helpful. I had been doing this, out of desperation, this form of meditation I read online. While you were taking the medication? 
Um, no, so I had is... I hadn't taken it yet. Oh, you were taking. I it. was I was collecting I it so I could take it all at once and die. I see. And um, so I had planned to do it on a Friday. The Thursday before the day I had planned to kill myself, I was doing this meditation practice in my bedroom, and where you would lay in a comfortable position, you would light a candle, stare at the flame, and count backwards in your head, slowly start telling yourself your eyes are getting heavy, and eventually close your eyes. You're just focusing only on your breath and that flame. Then once your eyes were closed, you would start with your toes, work all the way, every joint, muscle, fiber, ligament, molecule of your body you can think of. Think about it, visualize it from your toe to the top of your head. Like a body scan? Like a body scan, like a, like a mental body scan, I suppose, yeah. And once you're through that, you then, you tell yourself you couldn't move your body if you wanted. You, you are only acknowledging your, your spiritual existence and uh, your soul. Um, so once you're at that point, you know, usually it would take 10 minutes, 15 minutes to kind of work that process. And the, the article I read online said to, to visualize your perfect place of tranquility. And, you know, just a place where you could let go of, of everything that's troubling you. And to just be at peace and really quick how did this article find its way to you good question actually it was um actually shared with me by my close for most of the time was in livonia my closest friend chad okay um so he shared it with me um unknowingly kind of yeah unknowingly he had no idea i was in this struggle or i was Mm -hmm. feeling you know that that degree of depression Um, thanks chad (laughs) yeah thank you chad So the night before I was planning to kill myself, I was doing that. I was visualizing my place of tranquility, which every time I did this practice, it was the same place. It was me in a tropical paradise, turquoise water, white sand beach, you know, palm trees, tropical birds, fruit everywhere. And on a small, small grassy island in a gazebo, getting a massage by a beautiful woman, you know, never sexually or intimately, nothing like that. Just, just getting... You know, all the kinks worked out on my back, my legs, and just, just at, at peace. So in the midst of this visualization, you know, you know, as you read a book, you know, you, you read a paragraph of a very detailed, a lot of adjectives, a lot of expl- explanation to what you're actually reading. You can form that visualization in your mind. You can almost, you know, you can kind of see it. That's, you know, very similar to what it was. You're reading those words. You're putting thought to give life to the visualization. What happened next was so profound it was unlike that i put no thought and no there were no words to see what i saw it was the night before i was planning to kill myself i was meditating i was in my place of tranquility and instantaneously my visualization changed from me third person seeing my own body naked falling in a pit about the size of this room 15 feet wide in diameter endlessly falling in a in a black pit there were thorns on the sides of the pit about a foot long, that as I was falling, my body was scraping into, and I was being impaled so so severely that, that I was bleeding out, that you know I should have, should have died. I was bleeding out and falling, being impaled by these thorns, but I was not dying. And I, I was so confused, like in, you know, just in the state of shock, seeing what I was seeing so, so vividly. And I, I had the thought, I almost, I don't know if I asked myself or I asked God, I said, is, is this hell? What am I, what am I seeing? What am I experiencing? This is insane. And the second I have that thought, my body hits a cobblestone floor so hard that it 
concave to the floor, about two feet. And my, I remember vividly, my right shoulder fell out of socket because that's what hit contact first to the ground. And my arm was limp. And I somehow was still able to stand. And I stood up, left hand on the right shoulder, bloodied, broken, bruised. And that's when I heard this voice say my name. It said, Jeremy, come here, Jeremy, come closer. And the, the tone was of complete mockery, as if my existence was a joke, as if I had no value. And, and also it spoke to me like a, almost like a, like a predator, like it, it was like I was a meal. And um, I sort of, in a trance-like walk, I couldn't speak, I couldn't think. All I could do was walk towards that voice. And I broke the threshold of an of a archway that led into a cavern, about a football field in size, that had stalactites, stalagmites, and there were old-style church pews, the old wooden-style church pews you see in old churches, um, about a hundred of them, that led up to an elevated stage. Every church pew was filled with a small black shadow, and at the st main stage, where the voice was coming from, was a large black shadow, about 12 to 15 feet tall in height, arms and legs and a head, but no hands or feet or a face. And so he was almost like a wisp of smoke, but very thick, um, you know, kind of floating on there. And the second I see all this in a very, very, you know, split second, all the, the black shadows in the pews, they, their heads turned in unison and they had eyes of orange fire. And they shared that, that trait I felt in the tone of the voice that they looked at me like I was a meal, like they wanted to consume me or devour me. And the instant I saw all of this, um, it all happened very quickly. But I felt this this sort of pull, uh, tension, come from my toes, through my shins, knees, hips, core, torso, and then just like came out the top of my head. It kind of like a like a pop, and all of a sudden, I could think clearly. All my wounds were gone, and this giant white light rushed in behind me the same way that I had fallen and flew overhead, went right up to the stage, thousands of other white lights behind the white light, dispersed almost like army ranks floating over the pews, went up to the black shadow and said, you do not touch Jeremy Kramer. Jeremy Kramer is mine. And um, I have no doubt that the creator, Father, Mother, God, just, just he had... He had purpose for me and, and saved me from from that that state I was in, that lie of hopelessness, of feeling, you know, defeated, feeling that it was I was never gonna get out of that feeling of being alone. And just gave me exactly what I needed to know that we are never alone in our struggles. There are divine beings loving, guiding, and protecting us every step of the way. Every breath you take, you are never alone. You are protected and you are loved. You are understood. You are cared for. You are being fought for. You have value. And and that's what I kind of learned through that experience. So at 14, after that, my heart was just on fire for God. And I, I made this complete kind of turnaround from that depression. And since then, it it's it hasn't existed <laughs> at all. Not, not, not a bit. Um, so that was definitely a, a turning point in my life. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's a powerful story. 
it, it really was a, it was a powerful experience. And I've, I've actually, I've kind of drawn it out like a comic book, mm. you know, and eventually I really want to just, just get the story out there. Cause I've, I've felt, and I can still, I could go walk the streets right now and I could, I could go find that feeling I was feeling in somebody else's face probably right now, probably just around the corner. There's somebody in a bedroom alone right now who just, who needs to know that, who needs to know they're not alone in that. And they, you know, they can find what they need. They already have what they need, Mm -hmm. you know, and they can break free of that depression. One thing, just because it's been so prevalent in my life currently is I lost my grandmother about a month ago. God bless her. Yeah. My aunt Libby actually passed away yesterday and God bless you, Libby. Yeah, and with all of this death happening so quickly, I have so much love for them, and I was never sure how I would feel dealing with death because I hadn't really experienced that many close relatives passing. Yeah, and I feel like I mean, Libby was so sudden. Um, I just have been sending as much love as I can to her immediate family, and I mean, just our entire family. But I just, I feel like I have a new understanding of death that has really empowered me to know that death is not a bad thing, that death is an upgrade for us, that we do not die once we lose our physical bodies. And it sounds like your experience happened out of body, you know, in many ways, and that Jeremy Kramer is, you were saved from that feeling, but that feeling was not necessarily tied to death. I don't want to make it too confusing for people listening, but in a sense that like the feeling was even worse than death. Yes. It was those faces are not where you're going. If you die, you know what I mean? You're, I don't know if you can help me explain that, but you, do you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. I mean, to, to relate it to, to where I was then before I even had the, the visualization, you know, death, death to me was the answer for my depression. It was a sense of comfort, the, con- the idea, you know, of passing on from this physical plane. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. Our, you know, not to go down this rabbit hole too far, but our culture really here in America teaches us that death is to be feared. You know, death is, death is not natural. Like, that's, that's one of the only guarantees, only certainties we have in life. And it's, we're not meant to fear death. I, I just read a passage in one of my favorite books that I'm reading right now that said, a warrior neither seeks death nor runs from it. It just is. You know, it's it, it's part of this cycle, this process, our existence. Well, so you have this experience, and what happens next? You, in your physical body. So 14, living in Novi, my mother and I, you know, you might think, you know, oh, you know, he found, you know, you know, he felt proof of God and this, that things were perfect, hunky-dory since then. But no, I still, still was, you know, a 14-year-old male in America. I struggled very much with, with anger, with substance abuse, with connection. And I imagine it's hard to tell anybody. It almost isolates, it could have isolated you even more to have such a profound experience and not be able to put it into words and share with people what you just went through yeah especially with not with nobody knowing what your plans were it it definitely did and in in the aspect of you know the spiritual existence versus the physical existence you know back to our culture we're kind of neglected the spiritual realities of our lives you know in in our mainstream culture um so it really clashed 
very much so with my social experience. You know, here I had, it was the most important thing to me, but yet I found almost no others who even acknowledged that as truth. So it, it kind of repeated that cycle of me being an outcast in school and especially high school. So yeah, it definitely, it definitely was hard. Um, but it, at the same time that, that faith that, that had been instilled in me was the most peaceful, loving, grounding thing that I think we can ever have. Um, but I still struggled greatly with my relationship with my mother and my stepfather. And I love you guys so much. I'm sorry for the asshole I was back then. I was, I was, a, I was a rough person to be around, I'm sure. But they had, we kind of mutually chose to have me move in with my father, who was living in South Lyon. So I would be there full time and visit my mother and stepdad rather than, you know, vice versa. So I moved to South Lyon and I did my last two months of my freshman year at South Lyon High School. So at that point, you know, going from, you know, eight months or so of, of private Christian school to a very laxed curriculum of public school, it, uh, it kind of seemed as a joke to me, you know, the curriculum, I, I kind of, you know, I, I could feel that a lot of things I was being taught just weren't really part of reality and what mattered. And so I kind of, I didn't drop out, but I, I'd skip school all the time. I just, I was very apathetic. I wouldn't, I didn't care that I wasn't getting my credits. I didn't, I didn't care that I wasn't passing classes. Not a second. I just, I put every effort into not being engaged in the public school system from the first week I was in it, especially in high school. Um, so we found groups of friends, you know, naturally who were similar and, uh, you know, just like my circle in Livonia, we like to do, you know, very daredevil-like stunts, and we got videos on YouTube, and all that silly nonsense. You're going to have to send me these <laughs> so I can link them in the description. We'll oh, I them. sure will. This will be uh, a little humiliating, but no, it's good. It, it, it's it, it's very entertaining, to say the least. I've uh, got a lot less brain cells now because of it, I'm sure. <laughs> You're still with us. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. I, whew, yeah. Some close calls, to say the least. <laughs> so, you know, I found a circle of friends there. We'd skip school, you know, we'd drink a lot and smoke weed a lot. And that was kind of our priority. You know, even though I had this profound spiritual experience and I loved God, I was still, you know, a 14-year-old kid and being heavily influenced by my peers and the ways of the world and, you know, materialism and substance abuse. So that was kind of the theme for the next uh, couple of years in, in high school as I, you know, I entered my junior year with, I think, like seven credits when I think you need what, like over like 24 or something to graduate. So there was like no way, shape or form I had a chance to graduate on time. I didn't care. You know, I wasn't concerned with my future. I wasn't thinking about that. I just, you know, I was miserable in the public school system. I just, all I could think about was not was wanting to not be in it. So my stepmother, actually, Ellen, she's an incredible woman of God. She has so much love for others. She, you know, knew my struggle without ever really even having an in-depth conversation with me about it. And she had a friend who had a son who went to this program in Battle Creek called the Michigan Youth Challenge Academy. And you know, at first I was like, oh, you know, someone reaching out to me, trying to help me, you know, I'm, you know, throwing my hands up, you know, refusing that completely. 
But then once I actually thought about it myself, this it was a military school, a program where you you live there on base for six months. You you can graduate with your GED and 15 college credits, or you can return to high school and get your diploma rather than just a GED. Um, so that seemed like a perfect fit for me. I felt that I really needed that form of structure, and it was very appealing to me. So I actually chose to enroll myself into the Michigan Youth Challenge Academy. And so I started there at, uh, let's see, it would have been January of 2009. Okay. Um, so I graduated. I went through that that whole experience, which was very radical, very intensive. A whole nother podcast. A whole nother podcast. I could go on and on about that. Um, I was, wow, wow, that'll be 10 years ago next year. Oh, my wow. goodness. That's wild. <laughs> Incredible. Um, but that that time was when I kind of developed my interest in in physical exercise and working out. You know, I, I loved the drill and ceremony and the marching that the unity, that goal, we're all like together fighting for this. It kind of filled perhaps that void I was trying to with the social groups and maybe even from the divorce. So I, for that time there, I kind of, I kind of had that filled, you know, I was constantly connecting, constantly around people. You know, I had constant structure as to what to do. There wasn't really much, there was no choice, <laughs> you know, as to what you're going to do. So you didn't have time to really even get caught up in your own thoughts or, you know, the what ifs. Um, so I thrived there. I really did. I, I really enjoyed the program and I'm so grateful, you know, for, for the whole academy and for, for everybody who plays a role and a part of making that happen. There are thousands upon thousands of, of young men and women now that have, you know, bettered themselves and have a better chance at becoming whoever they want to be, who they're meant to be. Are they highly encouraged to, you know, pursue the army or the military in terms of when you go through that? Absolutely. That... Of course, yeah. there's that, you right. know, there's recruiters on base always. And um, there were quite a few who enlisted right out of military school. I was only 16 when I graduated. Um, so I couldn't enlist immediately. But I, I did have a recruiter. I was gung ho for the military lifestyle. And, you know, I wanted to fight for a righteous cause, which is what I believed our military was, is. And, uh, so I did enlist, you know, once I was 17, which, you know, I graduated in June. It was a couple months, and then I was 17. I was meeting with a recruiter that whole time. I had taken um, my ASVAB, got a 78 on it. I hadn't chose my MOS yet, my exact job, what I wanted to do. And I hadn't done my MEPS testing yet, the, the physical testing, and I can't remember what else that entails. Um, so there are a few more steps, but I... You know, I essentially, I was already enlisted. You know, it was something I was going to do. It wasn't, there wasn't any backing out at that point. But then a kind of blessing in disguise happened. It's kind of silly, but at the, the same time that I was, you know, gung-ho, wanting to be, you know, a member of our army, I was also, you know, very much so into the marijuana world, and I was selling weed, and I got caught. I got caught with 19 grams of weed, and uh, try to spare you the boring details, but... um. I was driving my sister's car. I had left a cell phone charger at my friend's house. He lived in a duplex in South Lyon. So I pull up, and my friend who I was buying weed from and selling weed with was in the passenger seat. And I said, hey, just stay here. You know, I'll be just a second. I'm just grabbing my charger. I'll be right back. Well, I went inside, and, you know, my good friend 
and I, we got up having a conversation. He was a very spiritual guy as well. Very, very good guy. And all of a sudden there's red and blue lights flashing in the front yard. And I'm like, what what the heck? Like, oh no, my sister's car. And I see my friend in my car getting ripped out of it with four guns in his face. And it turns out little, not to my knowledge, but he had been on Xanax. So he was essentially blacked out. He knocked on the other duplex, which happened to be a 90 year old lady's house. And he thought we were locking him out because she wouldn't answer the door. She was scared of him. He's some crazy guy on Xanax. Oh so she gosh. called the cops. And when the cops showed, he's just sitting in the car waiting for me. He thought we locked him out or something. You know, I had I had my weed under my seat. He had his weed on him. And, you know, wow. they searched the car. They find that. And I walk outside saying, you know, good evening, officers. Like, this is my sister's vehicle. I was, you know, driving it. Like, what's what's going on? What's the situation? And... This gentleman, who was quite a bit older than me, had he already had that reputation in town. They knew who he was. They knew what he was involved with, and I didn't. I had no idea the extent of of that at all. But they were very kind. They said, you know, I I don't know if you're aware of this, but this gentleman is a known drug dealer in your town, and you know we think he probably stashed his weed under your seat to try to blame you. And I actually admitted that it was mine. I told the truth. You know, like I was told, you always do to police officers. You know, if you, if you're just honest, they'll they'll look out for you. So because I admitted to that, I got taken in and got a possession charge for 19 grams of weed at 17. So you know, typical in in Oakland County, you know, Southern Michigan, you're given probation. You know, very intensive drug testing and and going to meetings, and you know, you have to pay a ridiculous amount of thousands of thousands of dollars to who knows where for or for what so you know like most silly 17 year olds on probation i continued to smoke weed on probation um oh i'm sorry let me back up because i got this charge i it it completely extinguished my enlistment because at the time the army wasn't accepting marijuana charges even misdemeanors which is what i got so so that it, it ended that route that i was kind of wanting to go on i got caught violated probation and i actually violated because i tried to fake a drug test i was still smoking i used my friend's urine um got away with it very slick like you know i had this bag all taped in like i was even on camera i even got searched and patted down but they didn't find it and i got away with it i you know like i'm scot free you know i'm I'm in a jail cell being held because they think i'm lying you know but i you know probation officer approaches me well mr kramer we know you're doing cocaine (laughs) and i'm like uh excuse me i've never done a hard drug in my life that's 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 a lie like let me take another test and they're like well you know these don't these don't they're never faulty you know we won't let you take another test so i admitted to falsifying the drug test and she's like, what do you mean? No, you were searched. You were in a cell. You were on camera. No, you didn't. I pulled out the bag of urine and showed her. And so I was actually at that point lied to by my probation officer and the judge. They told me that because I falsified a drug test, the 93-day maximum for a misdemeanor of possession of marijuana became 12-month maximum, a year maximum, um, just the charge of falsifying a drug test, you can be thrown in jail for a year, which was not true. 
Um, but because I was 17, I was alone. I had no representation. I had no legal counsel. I had no parent. I was a child. I was a terrified, terrified child. And they said, well, sign our sobriety court program. Come on to sobriety court and we won't throw you in jail for a year. Naturally, I'm like, okay, you know, whatever you want. I'll do it. I'll do it. So I signed those papers in the fine print. Actually, I don't even think it was in the fine print. Um, this was a sobriety court program that Judge Brian McKenzie had created himself. He had the highest prosecution rating in the entire nation for a while. He was one of the strictest judges. And um, so they kind of schemed this so that no matter what your charge is, when you get on sobriety court, your maximum sentence becomes a year. So that was when they were able to throw me in jail for that amount of time, if I violated again, which, of course, I did. <laughs> so I dropped dirty, and actually the final violation was that I was like about 20 minutes late to a probation meeting. And they said, you know, we try to give you a chance, Jeremy, but, you know, you just don't seem invested, and we're going to put you in jail for a year. So... At about at 17, I was sentenced to a year in jail. And that was uh, definitely a stepping stone to, to who I am today. It was very, very hard. Incredibly hard. And I just, for people listening, it sounds like one blow after another. But from looking back, connecting the dots now, I think the universe had plans for you. You know what I mean? It's it's brought you to this moment. It's brought, it's made you into who you are. It's, and before we hit record, you're just telling me about, uh, what happened in jail and the, the moments that you opened up, you know, the book. And I just, I feel like I just wanted to interject really quick because I feel like, you know, you create, it's the hardest thing to hear, but it's like you, you we create our own realities and this could be a sucker punch to you or it's a great opportunity and it's you know your choices and your you know and these other people who might seem like good people or bad people but it's all lining up for you you know it's bringing you to who you are and so i feel like that's hard to hear right? i feel like you're open enough to no you're absolutely right so i want to thank you because it's it's hard to accept that as truth um but I think it absolutely is. You might not have control over every circumstance that you're going to go through, but you absolutely always have the control of how it affects you, how it makes you feel, how it makes you think, how it makes you act. You always have that. And because of that, the worst of circumstances can be the best moments of your life. And what, like you said, what a terrifying, you know, 17. I can't even imagine what that would feel like at 17. Yeah. But... Um, please continue. So um, you're 17. You're, what is that like? So that was like um, complete defeat. I had no idea, you know, that, you know, a year in jail didn't seem like a year in jail. It seemed like a lifetime in jail, you know, at 17. You know, I was still just a kid running around wanting to hang out with friends and party or, you know, do whatever. And then I'm completely uprooted from the world, put in a cage surrounded by mostly you know men in their 40s so the first week was was the absolute hardest without a doubt you know i had 
just, just, I kept thinking like, how, how am I going to get through this? This is so much time here. Like, you know, and just the energy of a place like that of, of Oakland County jail, Michigan, it's, it's evil. It's very, very evil. It's, you know, imprisonment for, for profit, you know, no, I don't think there's really a public outcry from any of our public to say, you know, 17 year olds who smoke weed, they need to be put in a cage to change. No, that's probably the exact opposite of the truth for, for most petty crimes that, that our jails are full of right now. So the first week was the hardest, but absolutely God was looking out for me and probably many, many others because, you know, when you first enter, you're thrown just in what they call the tanks, good old R9, which is nothing but concrete. You're sleeping on nothing but concrete. You know, you get nothing but a bologna sandwich and an apple to eat maybe like twice a day, three times a day, if that. But within two hours of being in R9, the deputy came up and he said, Kramer, like, uh, yes, sir. Do you want to be a trustee? Uh, yes, 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 sir. So within two hours of starting my year in jail, they took me out of the tanks, which is, that never happens. Usually takes days. And I was shipped to trustee dorms, W2, and... I got a job just mopping floors. You know, I mopped at night. I would go to different sections of the jail and mop. So, you know, it was my first week was that. But I still, you know, had that that feeling of, of defeat. Like I just at my wits end, like, how is this? This doesn't feel real. Like, how is this going to, how am I going to get through this? And at this point, I had strayed very far from my walk with Christ. You know, I hadn't read a Bible in probably over a year. But I felt obviously in that, you know, God, want, God loves to have you anytime, especially when you really, really need him. <laughs> and, you know, I felt caught. I was like, you know, I really need to get into the word. I need, I need a Bible. You know, I need, I need that. And I remember having a conversation on the phone with my mom, probably four or five different times, if not more saying, you know, can you, can you buy me a Bible? Can you get one sent to me? Cause there were none for some reason, you know, they're almost always very easily available. There was not one easily available to me in those dorms. Um, but the day after I had asked her to get me one somehow, and she was looking into it, I wake up and the bunk next to me on the floor was a Bible. It was very old, you know, used up and, you know, it has, it's got this picture of a fist with a chain on it and the chain being broken and it says free on the inside. I was like, huh, that wasn't there yesterday. And nobody had come or left our 10 man cell. So I was like, oh, maybe I just didn't notice it. You know, maybe, maybe I didn't just, maybe I just didn't notice it. So I, another day or two goes by, nobody touches it. And finally I ask the bunk next to me, the gentleman, I said, you know, is that yours? He says, oh, no, I never noticed that. No, it's not mine. It wasn't anybody's. Nobody had noticed it before. So I, so I claimed it and I, you know, I put it on my bed and still, still didn't open it for a couple of days. There was one night, I remember it so vividly, I was so down, just, just not knowing how I was going to get through this experience. I mopped the floor and there was a metal picnic table in the center of our 10 man cell. And I got back at about three in the morning. Um, so for the first time in my whole beginning of this time in jail, everyone was asleep. I actually had silence. There was nobody else talking. There was no announcements over the PA. There was, there was nothing. And so I said, okay, and I, I grabbed the Bible, I sat down at the table, I held it in my hands, and I said, God, please, 
if there was anything that you would have me know, please just, just know that I'm open to you and I'm seeking you and I need you. And I flip open that Bible and the first thing I see is Job 8, 6. And it says, be pure and honest and I will rise up and help you now. I will return you to where you belong. And I felt this insane tingle, kind of like goosebumps, but so much more intense, radiate through my spine and out the extremities of my body and like the back of my arms and my legs and so warm like this, this hug from God. And in that same moment, I saw a little mouse run out from the corner of the room under the picnic table, jumped over my foot and then ran in the hallway and kept going. And I was like, was that you, God? Maybe? (laughs) And it instantly, instantly, as soon as I read that verse and I had that feeling, that comfort, because I just, you know, you know, I picked up the Bible. I still ignored him. I still didn't take the time, but that first instant i put the slightest bit of effort into seeking god he took all of my worry away so break that down for us what does that mean to you that verse so to be pure and honest and that that the lord will rise up and help you now so you know purity um to me is to be to be free of everything that is harmful to be free of everything that is unrighteous, unclean, sinful, if you will. Um, and then honesty, you know, to, I mean, most people know what that is, but the, to break honesty down, um, it's very similar to purity, but it's but it's different. It's it's real acknowledgement and always in, in every way, in, in every thought, in every action, in every choice, to be real with yourself and to where you're at and what you're doing, to not try to, you know, falsely justify or pretend to just be honest with yourself, with others, with everything that's going on, to just be in that state of acceptance for what is. Um, but I think a lot, I think just being real, you know, with yourself. Um, and then, of course, obviously, there's the very generic way you can take honesty, just not lying. Mm-hmm. Um, well, for the purity part, when you say to be free from harm, should be free from those things how how do you do that i mean in this day and age i feel like i was talking with sabrina in a previous podcast we're born like we're going to get hurt you know it's those things and the suffering that brings us consciousness and so yeah how how do you see that just to clarify it even more what how do you free yourself from those things is it the way you see them like you said you can have things happen to you you can't necessarily control those things, but you can control how you feel about it. Um, you know, how do you how do you free yourself from harm? Like, to me, there's absolutely and only ever was and only ever will be one way, and that is connection with the Creator of this universe. Hmm. That's acknowledgement and just time spent with God. Um, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. Um, that's, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's being of absolute pure love, you know, that's the source of love. And when you seek that out, when you, you know, you put effort into that friendship, into that connection, it it changes you. It restores your heart and your mind. That's what keeps you pure because we're not pure. Every human is flawed in some way, shape or form. We all have our flaws, faults, and failures. Everyone does. You know, you can't, 
can't say that about anyone. Um, but when you when you are with God, it doesn't matter. Those 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 things aren't a part of who you are. You you are made new when you just pursue God. When you're with God, when you're in that state of of righteousness, when you're pursuing the righteous path. Um, so to me, that's it. That's how you stay pure. Is you you know you you prioritize the ways of God, not the ways of the world, the the spiritual, not the physical or the material. It's such an interesting um, subject and one that I'm glad that you bring to the table and bring up in conversation and are a living example of because I think that just the word God is so misunderstood. Oh, and, absolutely. And it's interpreted in so many different ways and in so many different religions. And people may be rejecting what it is you say or they may be agreeing with what it is you say and that's just one extreme example of you you it's your connection it's not anybody else's connection and so to say that your connection is the right way or the wrong way um it's yours it's nothing nobody can take that from you yes and so yeah. i'm so happy to be able to hear it from you what it means to you and just putting that out there to listeners that you know be open but um it's it's your connection so it's your it's yes. going to be different for everybody and it doesn't mean that there's one way there's no and god has been such an an interesting entity in my life and one that i'm still exploring and so just to be able to have open conversations is very um healing and eye-opening so thank you yeah thank you solomon um no it's so true i'm sorry i'm going my mind's going to my own minute that's okay i wanted to make a point uh what you just spoke of oh the um um that it's your path or your relation your connection with god like to me you know going to church being in a spiritual group being all that like man is not meant to counsel other man you're not meant to go through a man to get to God. You know, the concept of priesthood, like, no, no. You you can encourage, you can, you know, try to uplift and, you know, interpret, you know, the word or the righteous path, but only you know your walk with the Creator. And that's how, nobody else is meant to tell you how to walk with God. And just to lighten that to an extra example would be, I can tell you something, but it doesn't mean anything to you unless you understand it for yourself. You know, I could say, Jeremy, you create your own reality, and you could hear that for years yeah. until the day you change your mind about something and realize that you're creating your own reality, and then that's yours. But my words will never give you that understanding. And so, similar to a higher power, to God. Yeah you're not going to get that through me. You're going to get that with what it actually is in your own experience. The value comes when you experience it for yourself, right. by yourself. Exactly. Yeah, and and so much of our culture is always seeking. Hey, give me the answers. Hey, you, can you can you help me get these answers? And you're never going to find it from anybody else. And so we all have to turn within and it's like the experience you said, when you turned within, when you had that 
presence with God, you understood it and it's changed your life ever since. Yeah. So you're in prison still <laughs> at 17. Yeah. What happens next? Yeah. For Well, from there, I got out when I was 18. You know, I missed Christmas. I missed my 18th birthday. You know, and my time in jail is a whole other podcast too. But I had uh, joined a, a small Bible study with just three other guys. By the time I left, there were over 40 of us. I had such profound experiences with so many different men on so many different levels, so much time of healing and prayer, and and I'm so grateful for that time. Up until literally this year, 2018, that was the best year of my life because of that. In prison. In jail. Yes. Jail. Yes. Yeah, I can say that without a doubt because, you know, here I was, completely uprooted from the ways of the world, put here with no distractions, just nothing but my connection with those around me and with God. And it was it was much easier to, to make that priority because there weren't all those distractions. I didn't have the freedom, obviously, um, to pursue the distractions of the world. So yeah, that was it, was, it was really, really good as much as it was hard at that age, especially to be away from family, to be away from everything I had ever known. Um, but when I got out, I um, kind of started working full time for my father for the Harvard Flooring Company. What did that feel like getting out of jail? Do you remember the day you got out? or The most vivid thing I remember is not realizing that I hadn't seen the moon in 10 months. And I got out at night. My mother and sister picked me up. And you know, it was the first time I'd seen them in 10 and a half months, you know, in person, not through a pane of glass or on a video. And it just, I actually kind of felt a little, a little disconnected. It was, it was really hard to make that adjustment. Um, you know, I was in relatively constant contact with them, you know, and through phone calls. So there wasn't much conversation in the car at home. It was, um, you know, it was very late. And, but I just remember staring at that moon, like, I've missed you. Like, wow. Like back, back to the world. Like I just, it was just baffling. I, I, it was kind of almost like a, like a baby coming into the world again. I was reset. I really didn't know how or what to think really. Because that had been my reality for, for nearly a whole year. I can't speak for you, but it just it reminds me of an exercise where you imagine everything that you own, all the relationships in your life, are taken away from you and then are given back to you. And how does that make you feel? You know, it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful to be back in this place. All of my issues seem so petty yeah you know, yeah like, absolutely crap, I'm happy. so yeah i guess it's so true at a at such a young age i learned the value of you know that the little things in life that most of us are fretting over are so temporary and minute you know it's a waste of time to even be stressed about them to limit your own ability to connect and love because of that or be at peace so yeah it uh started working full-time uh, with the flooring company, doing that. For the next two, three, you know, into 18, 19, that was, that was what I was doing full-time, and even after that. But at 19, you know, I was still the same, you know, daredevil, you know, adrenaline junkie Jeremy. And um, my favorite hobby was climbing roofs. So I'd find the tallest buildings I could scale. I'd go to Ann Arbor and climb cranes. I do all kinds wow. of ridiculously wild stuff with, with the rooftop climbing. But I had an unfortunate, another bizarre scenario where I was at my high school, South Lion High. 
about to climb up the gas line pipe to get on the roof, which was like a three-story straight wall, but a pipe that went up it. So it was about 40 feet just up a pipe against a brick wall. My friend and I, we heard it. We noticed it was leaking slightly. So naturally, you know, it was Sunday night. We thought no one was there. No, the groundskeeper was there. So she comes out yelling, freaking out. Um, he was halfway up the pipe. I was still on the ground, hadn't even touched the building yet. And, you know, she freaks out. But then we're just like, hey, you know, we're not trying to... Because, like, multiple kids have done it before. They broke skylights and broke into the school and stole stuff and spray painted stuff. And, like, we're like, no, we just really like heights. We just like to be, you know, climb. That's just, that's where we get our adventure. It's what we like. And so she's like, okay, you know, you know, I, I trust you guys. You seem all right. Like, you, you're not running from me. Um, but would you mind staying until the police come just to verify and it's like yeah sure you know no problem you know you're you're nice enough like no problem talking with them and when they got there um the officer on scene because the gas line was broken he chose to believe that we maliciously broke that gas line so he took us in and i got what they call a prowling charge which is loosely defined as loitering with the intention to commit a crime really can be anything so i went in to see the same judge again and not to dwell on the whole jail experience but this part's very important to me um at 19 when i went for my pre-sentencing i asked all the arresting officers i asked the magistrate i asked all of my legal counsel what's the definition of prowling none of them knew none of them would even give me an answer they would they would avoid my question as if i didn't even ask it so when I finally went up to the judge, do you want to plead guilty, innocent, or no contest? The other odd thing was that there was a public defender and Judge Brian McKenzie in the room, and they conveniently forgot to call my name on the list. So nobody else, no witnesses were in the courtroom, no one. And I'm alone with just the public defender and the judge. And I said, yeah, my pre-sentencing's today, and they're like, oh, Oh, yeah, you, Jeremy Kerner, okay. And then he asked me, how do you plead? That's all he said to me. And I said, well, I tried to ask your magistrate what I just said. You know, can you define my crime so, so that I know if I actually did it or not? Because at this point, I didn't even climb the building. I didn't even touch the building. You know, all I did was show up with the intention to climb a building. That was what I was literally arrested for. He doesn't even acknowledge me asking for the definition. He points at the public defender and motions for her to come up to his stand. They have an exchanging of words I could not hear. Then they tell me to show up next month for sentencing. Not a word is spoken to me. When I show up for sentencing, Judge Brian McKenzie had entered a guilty plea for me against my will, illegally. And I served three months in jail for that. Oh my gosh. So I missed my second Christmas in a row because of a judge that illegally, unconstitutionally entered a guilty plea for me. So those three months were actually far more stressful and difficult for me than the entire year because, you know, at least I could kind of justify like, yeah, I smoked weed and I, I knew I wasn't supposed to be. I was on probation. I violated. I tried to fake a drug test. Like there was some guilt on me there, you know, sure. Um, but this, I truly did nothing wrong and, and he broke the law to incarcerate me. So that was hard. Not to dwell on it anymore, but, um, oh, please. What do you what do you think of when you think of Judge, um, what's his name? Judge Brian Judge W. Brian. McKenzie. That's actually I'm glad you asked that because this 
um, was definitely a, a stepping stone for who I am today. Um, so actually, I I probably have a small degree of, of post-traumatic stress. Um, but for, for years, I actually, it would keep me up at night. All I could think about was what he did to me and how, how wrong he had treated me and just the way I was treated in that courtroom. And it would keep me up at night on a monthly basis, multiple times on a weekly basis almost, until finally, at almost 20, I, I actually had a friend over that night, but I woke up, it's all I could think about. I was crying, I was convulsing, I was shaking, I was angry, you know, and more, more sad than angry. I felt like I got robbed of my youth. And I, I begged God, I just, I begged God, please take this from me. Let me forgive this man so I can move on. And I prayed for hours that night, just God, let me forgive this man so I can move on. I woke up the next morning and it was completely gone. Complete, like, like insane, like absolutely insane. I, I had no more sorrow. I had no more self-guilt. I had no more anger towards this man. I was not thinking of revenge. I was not thinking any of these silly fantasies that I had been living in for so long because of that pain I was holding on to. And I forgave him. I forgave him. And that to me even more so proved the reality of, of, of a divine creator because I know that Jeremy Kramer does not have the power to forgive what was done to him. <laughs> But, but I was able to because I, I truly, truly just, just surrendered it to the Lord. And um, so that was, that was definitely one of the best experiences of my life. And what a, what a hard thing to forgive. I mean, there's so many people wrongly incarcerated and people falsely charged. And I mean, there's documentaries about it. People, they lose 40 years to a, to a, you know, and they're innocent and it's, they walk out of there. Some of the people walk out of there with only forgiveness, you know, and it is an incredible thing Yeah. to be able to, you know, it's like, holy shit. That's, that takes some serious love, peace, peace and love. love and yeah. 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 And I think that, you know, I'm grateful that we're living examples of that. That's the word really am. I even, even through those hard times, I'm so grateful for those experiences, what I was able to learn from them. Mm -hmm. um, and the values, you know, I, because of, you know, I was in this such a detrimental stage in my life, 17, on my way to transferring into being an adult, supporting myself and not really knowing, you know, what mattered in life. I was uprooted from all of that thought and distraction and just able to focus on me and on God and on what I really wanted. And you know, who I wanted to be. How did I really want to treat people? How did I want to be treated? What do I want to give and what do I want to receive? And I would have never gained that mindset or that value had I not spent that time away from everything in jail. Thanks again to Jeremy for being on the show today. If you want to get in contact with Jeremy, his phone is probably dead. <laughs> so send a letter via pigeon to wherever he happens to be living. Uh, word on the street is that Jeremy is headed to Michigan's Upper Peninsula this winter to learn how to train sled dogs. So if you're seeking adventure, maybe he can hook you up with a sled dog tour when the snow flies. If you enjoyed listening to the Saul Good Media podcast, 
please consider sharing it with a friend. I feel like we tend to underestimate the ripple effect we can have when we share things, whether it be a podcast, a compliment, or just a simple smile. So spread the love. If you'd like to support the Solgood Media Podcast, consider checking out my Patreon page, which is linked in the description of this episode. Patreon is a platform that allows creators like me to connect with the fans like you that would like to support the work I'm doing. You've been listening to the Saul Good Media Podcast. I'm Solomon Harvey. Have a Saul Good week. Peace.